Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. Thanks, Jacob Weaver and those uh, other few that responded back. Good morning. All right. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you have been around Redeemer for really uh, any portion of time, you have heard me preach this because I've preached it a lot. Uh, it is just one of those foundational things that I think we need to keep coming back to. Uh, I probably preached it two or three times a year, quite honestly. Uh, and so this is going to fit right nice and neatly into our series that we're doing this summer called Christianity 101, just taking some of the most uh, core and important elements of the Christian faith. Uh, and this, uh, this verse, uh, it sits in my dining room. My sweet wife, Hannah, got this uh, uh, framed, and it's there. So I see it just about every day, uh, and I've preached it quite a few times over our time here uh, in Midland because we say our identity statement as a church is that we are a gospel-centered, missional family. Okay, so the family portion is what it looks like to really live out what took place in the early church in Acts chapter 2 uh, of really having uh, this deep sense of community that Jesus has uh, purchased for us. Uh, and so it's just such a constant reminder. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a couple reasons that I want to talk about it and preach from this text. And probably, uh, you know, my goal is, and I've said this since we moved here about eight years ago, um, that I would love it if the Lord would allow us to pastor uh, here for 30 years and then call it a day. Uh, and I just think maybe there's a good chance we're going to preach this two or three times every year until Jesus comes back because it is so important. Uh, two reasons why it's worth to just simply remind us of some things that we've already heard before, okay? Uh, there's a lot of new people. Praise the Lord, we have new people coming uh, every single week. And so I, want, I don't want to take for granted that we talked about something or covered something six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, uh, because uh, so many people are coming that they constantly need to hear the very basic things. And then number two, is this just a good and a godly and a right thing to remind ourselves some things that are very important very often? Uh, reminding is a very biblical thing. It's actually a big portion of uh, a pastor and a preacher's job is not to just simply preach new things, but to remind us of the same old things. Uh, the, co the, the command in the Bible to remember is mentioned literally hundreds and hundreds of times because we tend to forget. Uh, parents in the room, how much of your job is to just simply the same the same exact thing over and over and over. It's like 99% of your job, right? You don't say much new, you wake up, you're like, brush your teeth, right? I've said that every day for thousands of days in a row, take a shower, feed the dog, wipe your feet off, and then they come out in the shower and they're dry. You're like, did you use water? Like, oh, and they go back and then they come out wet and you're like, did you use soap? And then they look ashamed and they go back and it's just like, it's just the same thing sometimes over and over and over and over. And, and, and God's words, so many times is just so incredibly repetitive, not because we don't need to learn something new, but because we need to be reminded of something old and we need to put something into practice um, that we already have known. So it's just important that we keep repeating certain things over and over and over. Uh, and Acts chapter two is one that I will probably never get away from. And honestly, uh, I think you know, as many times as I have uh, looked at this text and prayed about it and thought it over, uh, every single time, it just there's something new in it, there's something uh, fresh about it, and so I hope that if you've been around, uh, that you'll catch a little bit of that as well. Uh, I'll catch you up to speed if you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity. Acts chapter 2 uh, is really, the book of Acts is the chronicles, really, uh, the, the chronicles of church planting or uh, the beginning of what we would call the New Testament church. So the New Testament begins with the gospel. 
Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling the story of Jesus, his birth, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and they all four basically end with the resurrection and the great commission Jesus gave to the church to go and make disciples. And then that's where Acts picks up. Okay, Acts picks up a few weeks after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead and given the Great Commission, and uh, it's in Jerusalem, Peter, who had been a coward uh, just a few weeks before, if you remember the story, uh, where a little girl came up to him and said, aren't you with Jesus the night he was betrayed? He's like, I don't, I don't know the man. Uh, he, was just, he, he was a coward um, um, of all cowards. Uh, and then after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit, something radically changed him, where now the same cowardly Peter was an incredibly bold preacher, and he's preaching the gospel. And, and it's during Pentecost when thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of, of Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire would have found their way to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate uh, this, uh, this festival of Pentecost together. And in the middle of that, Peter stands up on, on a box and he's preaching the gospel and he's preaching that all of us are sinners. Jesus is a savior. He died to forgive sins. And if you believe that message, repent and believe and you will be saved, okay? He's preaching just the basic gospel and thousands of people respond. Okay, in fact, in one day, 3,000 people heard Peter preach, they believed the message of the gospel, and then immediately it says that they were baptized, uh, and then boom, you drop us into uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. It's such a compelling thing to study Acts because you're studying a group of people that were just radically ordinary people. Just very ordinary, a lot of them just very blue-collar people, uh, and yet what the Holy Spirit did through them has literally, this is not hyperbole, has changed, dramatically changed the face of, the, of planet Earth. Like what they did in that first century uh, would, would push the gospel out so quickly outside of uh, the, the, the walls of Jerusalem and the area of, of Judea all the way to the Roman Empire and eventually would, uh, would outlast and topple the Roman Empire. They would uh, change uh, the entire cultural landscape uh, of really planet Earth. And, and if you, you look at the effect Christianity has had on planet Earth, you can pull all that back uh, and look at ground zero for that being this early church, uh, and w there's a lot of things that the early church did that contributed to just this incredible growth of the church, and I don't have time to look at all of them, but what we do want to look at today uh, is just how well they did community. They did community so incredibly well. Uh, it seems to be one of their secret weapons. If you could say this, they were just really a very healthy, gospel-centered, missional family. The, mis the, the message of Jesus, uh, the gospel, was the center of who they were. That's our identity came from that. Their activity came from that. They were missional. They believed that God had given them a mission to spread the gospel, uh, and they operated as a family. They loved each other. They took care of each other. They encouraged one another, uh, and there was something so incredibly powerful about that that is just, it's, it's a very timely thing for us to be talking about in the culture that we live in that is a very lonely, very isolated culture, and the world needs the gospel seen through community now just as much as it ever has. So that's a little bit of the backdrop uh, as, as we land, kind of fly our way into Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, and if you are there, say, ready. 
So those who received his word, that's these 3,000 people who, who didn't just believe, like they didn't just hear what Peter was preaching about Jesus, but they received it, they believed it, they responded to it, those, those people. Like the, the first, the early church, the first century church, those who received his word were baptized Side note, we've got a baptism service coming up in two weeks. If you've received the word of the gospel uh, and have not been baptized, would love for you to do that. Uh, you just swing by on your way out, uh, go by the tent and just tell them, I want information about baptism or come to the Next Steps class we're having at 1230 uh, and I'll walk you through biblically what baptism is, why it's important. That's a side note, free sermon. Um, they were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they, okay, these brand new Christians, who knows how much, some of them, maybe they were coming out of pagan backgrounds. We don't really know all the details of these 3,000 people, but probably a very diverse group of people. Uh, some of them, maybe like the only thing they knew about Christianity was that one message that they had just heard from Peter. Who, who knows, maybe they were good Jewish people that had a, a good grasp on the Old Testament and, and Peter helped them connect the dots. Not sure, but this is how they responded to being new Christians and belonging to one another. They devoted themselves to four things. To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Everybody say devoted. I'm gonna actually get to that in a minute because that is like, that's a real operative word. That's such a deep word is what, what that literally means is they, they reoriented everything in their lives around kind of a new epicenter. That there was something brand new that they became devoted to. They were devoted to, first thing, uh, the apostles' teaching. And the apostles were teaching the, whole, the Old Testament. And they were preaching Christ, right? So they devoted themselves to God's word. And the second one says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And I've said this now for eight years. I think a, a much better um, description of that word or translation of that word is community. Uh, the Greek word there is koinonia. Uh, and it says that like the early church, they, they responded to the message. They responded to the gospel by devoting themselves to God's word and to the community, or you might say more, um, more practically, they devoted themselves to that particular local church of believers that belonged to Jesus. So I want to really preach basically this, this one verse, um, but, but really I want to just preach for this morning that one word, uh, fellowship, community, koinonia. That's the word that I want to take like a diamond in the sun and just uh, twirl it around and just like we're going to go from Christianity 101 down to community 101 because this is a foundational thing uh, for us as believers. So community 101, I want to take this and just kind of look what exactly happened and what exactly is Luke telling us this church devoted themselves to. So number one, very basic, what is community or what is that word that he says koinonia? I'm just going to get some participation this morning. It's going to help me even if it doesn't help you. Everybody say koinonia. Koinonia. 
look, you know Greek now. You know at least one word of Greek. We are well on our way to being uh, Greek experts. Um, that word can be translated, obviously, fellowship, uh, can be translated um, community, can be translated participation. It means that they were now, by virtue of belonging to Jesus, they belonged to a family. They were supposed to participate with a family. They had something in common with this new community. And I, I think we can't underestimate how foreign that truly is to the American mind. Um, because the American mind, we have been trained for uh, centuries now to be very individualistic, uh, which there's some incredible pros to looking at things just personally and that uh, we need to be saved personally through a personal God. But he is not just saving individuals, that uh, God is saving for himself a brand new family. He is purchasing for himself a people, and, and we're not just lone rangers that belong to Jesus. When we are adopted by God the Father, we're brought brought into a spiritual family where we have fellowship, community, and participation. Um, I've mentioned this name so many times, but it's hard to talk about community uh, without talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was a pastor and a theologian in Germany, uh, of all places, in the 1930s of all times. Uh, and if you know your world history, there was a lot of bad things going on uh, in the late 30s uh, among uh, really among Christians because Hitler was rising to power and really trying to snuff out and silence a lot of the Christian voices. And so Bonhoeffer basically begins preaching against Hitler and go, has to go underground because Hitler sends the Gestapo out to try to uh, find him and silence him. Uh, and he goes underground and just lives uh, a couple years before he's actually... Uh, He's captured and, and executed now just a, I think it was like a week and a half in, in, in April of 1945, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, a week and a half before Allied forces liberate Flossenburg, Germany. He's executed. But in, in, the, in that time when he's living uh, underground with these other Christians and trying to train these uh, young men to plant churches in an illegal way, uh, he devotes most of his time and life and writings to the idea of Christian community. And I've been pretty... Um, just intrigued by him and his writings over the years. I've uh, commended one of his books to you many, many times called Life Together. Uh, just talks about what really is the essence of Christian community. Uh, but I also found out that he did write uh, a dissertation about community called The Communion of the Saints. And I got so excited years ago that I uh, ordered this and, uh, and it showed up and it was in German. <laughs> and so I still haven't read it, but I'm sure it's a fantastic book. Uh, all that to say is one of the most brilliant minds in the 20th century uh, just thinking through and reading the Bible, he, he, he devoted his entire life to try to understand the beauty and the necessity of true Christian community, okay? So what is community? It's belonging to, in this particular sense, it's belonging to a church family because that's how God has designed us to be. Number two leads me to my second point as we turn the diamond uh, just a little bit, is that human beings were created for community. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll, just rewind your brain for a few minutes. 
back to the very first page in your Bible. It opens up, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes through uh, the creation story uh, when God creates everything, and then that, that terminates with like the very, the, the pinnacle of all creation, which is uh, mankind, humanity, and he creates Adam, and he puts him in the garden, and Adam was able to do so many things, okay? So if you're God looking down at him, he says, oh, this is very good, uh, and he looks down, he sees Adam, oh my gosh, Adam can, he can work with his hands. And men and women were made by God to work. That's a good thing, to work. He can work with his hands. He could sing. I don't know if he wandered around the garden making up songs to worship God. Maybe he did. He could, he could worship. He could sing. He could farm. He could ranch. He could name animals. He could just do a, a lot of incredible things. He could laugh. He could exercise dominion over. The, he could do a lot of things, right? But then God looks down on him doing all those good things and he says, it is not good. The first not good that shows up in the Bible. Okay, this is before Genesis 3. This is before sin comes into the world. There's something that's not good. And if, if you've been around any period of time, you know what this is. It's not something that was actually committed. It's not uh, something that was necessarily incorrect. It wasn't uh, sin. It wasn't fear. It wasn't murder. It wasn't hate. It, he says, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. What did we learn in 2020? <laughs> like I talk about 2020, but it's mainly as a way for me to kind of cope with my past, just kind of jokingly throw it out there. But like legitimately, do you remember 2020? The, the one thing the planet learned after we had this experiment that like, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, right? Y'all remember that? And, and then a few months in, everybody's so isolated, you start realizing, wow, it is really not good for people to be alone. Loneliness is just not a good thing. Why is that? Because God looked down on Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Why is that? Because humans were created in the image of God. And you need to know this about God. A lot of things, obviously, that you need to know about God. But God is a relational God. He has been relational since before the beginning. He has existed forever, eternity past to eternity future. In relationship, we believe in a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always existed in absolute perfect, shalom, peaceful relationships. God is not an, a, a solo God. He is a relational God in his being, at his core, and if he made us in his image, then one of the things that means is that we were designed to be relational, and if we're not, something inside of us is, is longing for something that it can't fully express. I, I, I wish I had just a greater understanding of kind of how this works, but I'll have one very quick story to show uh, how it's worked out in our lives. And you know this, sometimes just things happen and you feel like there's something in you that is just longing to connect uh, with another person. Uh, a few years ago, our oldest son, uh, just completely out of the blue, a few days before Christmas, um, just started having this grand mal seizure. Uh, and I didn't, I don't know if you've ever experienced a seizure before, um, but we had never experienced anything like that. I did not know what was taking place. I literally 
literally just thought my son uh, was dying and um, holding him, trying to keep him from biting his tongue as the ambulance comes in. Uh, and finally, we get him in the ambulance. They let me get in there uh, with them. And, uh, and, and we go to Midland Memorial. And then Hannah's trying to frantically get somebody from our church family who ended up being Russell Cowan. He came real quickly over to the house uh, and sat with the other kids while she followed the ambulance up to the hospital. And there was just so many things going on uh, in my soul at that moment where I thought I was losing my son. I had a lot of fear, a lot of uh, questions, a lot of anxiety. Um, but, you know, I've got to kind of hun- hunker down to get things done. So, uh, I'm just trying to make sure that he's taken care of. We get him into the emergency room where the nurses comes. They get him. Uh, they sedate him, give him some type of medication to, um, to, to cease the seizures. And, like, all that is finally done, and he gets wheeled off to a room where they won't let me follow. And I'm just sitting there alone. And I remember just this weird feeling like I had all these things and I didn't know like where they were supposed to go or what was supposed to happen. Um, But then when Hannah came walking in the room and physically touched me and just we gave each other a hug, it just like something when we connected, they just started pouring out, just start sobbing and crying. Have y'all ever dealt with anything like that where it's like, I don't know what it was, but there's something about a connection with another human being that opens up something, okay? Why is that? Because we were made in good and bad to be relational beings, and it is not good for us to be alone. Human beings were created for community physically. God designed it this way, that best case scenario, a human baby gets born into a physical family that is the best place for them to survive. This is why we care so much about uh, adoption, because we think every baby deserves a physical family. But the same is true spiritually, that when you're born again, as they were in Acts 2, spiritually, you are not just born as a spiritual orphan trying to live it on your own. You're born into a spiritual family that we call a local church, or you could say say community. Are y'all with me? It is not good for man to be alone. My second question in, in regards to that is, is that still true today? Is it still not good to be alone? Or is that just like, that was just true of Adam back in the day in Genesis. And I'm going to share a few stats with you. Uh, you've heard probably many of these stats. I've shared some of these stats uh, over the years, but I, I think basically uh, why it's, it's worth sharing some of this because it gives us a little bit of an understanding of what is taking place in our culture, just this unbelievable, unprecedented, destructive loneliness, and the answer to that problem is the gospel working through the church that creates a community that fills a need that every human being has. And so maybe you come in like, that's me, I'm really lonely. Well, praise the Lord, God's provided a family for you. Maybe you're like, you know, uh, I I belong to Jesus. I've got some community. Well, you might be the answer for someone else. But here's the question. Is it still not good to be alone? And you know that I love this. You know that I love uh, when science and psychology and all of those things uh, eventually catch up to the Bible. So they'll do all these crazy studies and they'll look out and they'll do, you know, these these national questionnaires and they come back and like, we have spent $4 million and we found this out. It's just, it's not good to be alone. It's just really bad. Let me run through a few of these. Americans, you know this, are more lonely uh, than ever. Uh, loneliness plagues our society. I think that is one of the, um, one of the costs of being a highly individualized uh, culture is that oftentimes that individuality can breed loneliness. 
But the Washington Post quotes the Surgeon General and says that loneliness is an epidemic, okay? Not a pandemic, not saying global, but it's an epidemic focused in on uh, the United States and really the West and the culture that we live in, that uh, this is some kind of a localized problem that we have, uh, loneliness. Uh, USA Today says that young people are more prone to loneliness than uh, older generations. Uh, The Boston Globe says the biggest threat facing middle-aged men, any middle-aged men in the room here? I'll let you uh, self-identify. I think I'm there. Um, Biggest threat facing middle-aged men is no longer smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. You're like, oh, good. I can smoke and eat now because that's not the biggest problem. Uh, For the first time in decades and decades and decades, the average life expectancy of Americans is going down. Most people would attribute that primarily to loneliness. It is unbelievably powerful. Uh, Cigna, many of you all know the company Cigna, did a huge study. says that uh, loneliness has the same effect uh, as 15 cigarettes a day. New York Times says since the 1980s, loneliness has doubled and it's having adverse effects on physical health and well-being. Social isolation is killing us. That was a pre-2020 study. But in 2021, American Perspectives did a study and they found out that 15% of Americans do not have even one single friend and 61% of those people in this room statistically would say they struggle with loneliness. It is a huge problem. Uh, individualism, I've talked about this already, breeds loneliness, that we're, especially with the advent of social media, it's so interesting that as social media has skyrocketed so that we have more connections, more friends, more acquaintances, we have less and less actual friends where we can confide. And the question is like, do you have someone in your life that it just like, they know your stuff, they, they, they know your problems, they know your fears, they know your sins, they know your addictions. The average American would say no, they're fighting all all their battles on their own. Is it still not good to be alone? Absolutely. Nothing has changed. So number four, this is what I want to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. What does it look like to be like the early church that was devoted to the fellowship? They were devoted to the community, okay? Uh, in, In Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer after spending a lot of his time thinking about and studying Christian community, uh, he said something that I quote every, uh, every single month at our Next Steps class as we talk about community. He says, the thing that ruins Christian community the quickest is when Christians are in love with the idea of community more than the actual people. Okay, did y'all catch that? Let me say that again. Because when I read that for the first time 15 years ago, I mean, it stung me because like everybody loves the idea of community, the idea of church, but then you get into actually broken, messy people. It's like, well, golly, I like community, just not this one because I like the perfect one that's out there somewhere. He's like, that's what ruins it all together. What ruins Christian community is when Christians are in love with the idea of what church and community might be and not the actual people. But you look at Acts 2, it's like, no, they were devoted to the fellowship. What does that mean? People. Like, they were devoted to Bob. Like, they weren't devoted to the idea of Redeemer Jerusalem. It's like, that's too easy to be devoted to the idea of something. They were devoted to the actual people that Jesus has purchased in his church. Um, Will y'all give me a moment to be honest? Okay, good. You're like, if you're not honest, get out of here. It's, it seems to me that one of the most profound ways that the early church was so impactful 
is that when they believe the gospel, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they reoriented their entire lives around Jesus and the gospel message and the church, okay? They, 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 they loved God's word. They loved God's people. They were devoted, it says, to the fellowship, which means like God and his word and his mission and his people became the new nucleus of their life, the center of their lives, and everything else became secondary or peripheral to that where they loved God's people and then they would use their time and energy and resources that you're gonna see later on. They were so wildly hospitable and generous that they were selling things if someone in their church had a need. Why? Because they were devoted to God's people and they used money to serve that need. Can we just say that probably in Midland, uh, a big chunk of people are here because they're devoted to making money and becoming wealthy. And so sometimes it can be flopped. We're like, well, I, I'm devoted. Like, I am devoted. I want to get rich, and I want to get rich quick. And I'm devoted to that. I will do whatever it takes. I will work however long. I will make however many sacrifices. I will do what I can because I am devoted to building wealth, and, and then I will I will use the church or use people to try to get, do y'all see how it can be just completely flopped instead of being devoted to God and his word and his people and then using money to that ends? You can be devoted to money and use people to that ends? Like I wonder if that's one of the things that, that, that God might need to change and reorient in our hearts. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching the fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. Like that became the center point. Everything else served that purpose. I think that's so revolutionary to the American and the Midland mind that we can't even understand the gravity of how big that revolution is. Like how much would change if we truly met Jesus, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and something that used to be at the center is no longer at the center. It is a tool to serve the center. Y'all with me? That's worth considering, okay? I'm not casting judgment. This is uh, reflective as much as anything. It's, it's worth considering. Maybe that's just the one thing we need to pull from this. Like, be devoted. I need to change my devotion, change my, 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 my deepest longing. I got a long way to go here. We got a lot to cover. What, here's the question. What does it look like then to be devoted to the fellowship, right? That one word. That, that one phrase. Uh, and I think the best way for us to do this, which we've done before, uh, is, to, is to kind of zoom out and look at the New Testament, look at all the different things that the church has been commanded to do uh, to one another. We call these the one another's, okay? There's a lot of different commands in the Bible that have the little phrase one another in them, uh, and they're designed to be um, instructive to the church, to Christians that are not just lone rangers, we don't just love Jesus and podcasts and listen sermons, we have been uh, adopted into a spiritual family, we belong to a local church, there are some commands, listen Americans, American mindset, there are commands that are absolutely impossible to obey on your own. It takes community, it's like ping pong, have you ever tried to play ping pong by yourself? It, it doesn't last for long. You get there like, bam, boom. Oh, man, I won again or I lost again. It's like, no, it, you have to have another, another person. So many of these one another's, I'm not going to go through all 60 of them, uh, but I do want to pick out some of the most, um, most common, most reiterated uh, one another's. And I think as we, as we think about and are reminded of these one another's as a church family, when we commit to obeying them, that, that, that's probably what it looked like for them to be devoted to the fellowship, to be devoted to each other. 
Y'all ready for this? If you're ready, say ready. ready. Number one, love one another. Jesus said it. He said it like this in John 13. He says, uh, and this is uh, last few hours of his life, to his disciples. This wasn't to everybody. This wasn't to the masses. This was to Christians. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, if, if you, like Redeemer, if you're a Christian, if you love one another, Jesus says this, uh, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, do y'all remember, we, we've, we, we've quoted this a lot, um, Martin Luther used to say that um, pride was the sin that's pregnant with every other sin. Like every sin can kind of find its root in pride. Uh, I, I'm, re, I'm retooling that phrase for this. Uh, I think the love one another is the one another that's pregnant with every other one another. Right? If, we just, if we can love one another, all other 59 one another's kind of take care of themselves. But Jesus says, love one another. And when he says it, he uses the word agape, and that's not an attitude, that's not an emotion, that is a sacrificial action, okay? If we're gonna obey the want to love one another, it doesn't mean I, I, I have affections for this person, I, I like this person, I have emotions for this person. It means I will do things and sacrifice for their good. Love one another. You can't do that in isolation. You can't do that without actually knowing and being connected with other people. To fulfill the basic command that Jesus gave us to love one another, it assumes relationship and community. Love one another. I, I think it's so powerful that he says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples. Number two. Uh, and I'm going to have to move fairly quickly. Serve one another. Galatians 5, 13. If you were here last week, you got this already. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, that's written to Christians. Serve one another. I will turn your attention back. Go catch the podcast from last week if you were not here. Uh, we spent the entire time talking about the command we've been given to serve one another. Okay, but that's a, that's a two-sided coin. I think if, if you're like me, sometimes I, I don't mind serving. I don't like to be served. Uh, anybody else in that boat? Like, do you have any problems? No. Do you have any needs? No, I'm fine. I'm here to help you, <laughs> right? And so, like, the two sides are sometimes you're, you're going to need some help. You're actually going to need someone else to serve you. And it is good and, and, and healthy to let someone else know when you're in a difficult position. Like, we need to serve. We need to be served. Uh, Paul talks about that so much. Love one another. Serve one another. Number three, this comes from 1 Thessalonians. Encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself, that's Jesus, okay? Jesus died, buried, rose, ascended, and Paul says the Lord himself will descend. He's coming back. He'll descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, because of that, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. I don't remember who it was, but I read it recently. 
They said, you're, just, you're, you're never going to meet someone that is suffering from over-encouragement. Anybody in the room, you're like, I'm just done, I'm just full, I can't take any more. Any moms in the room, you're just like, I'm just so wildly and deeply encouraged that I can't handle any more. Any dads in the room, any single folks in the room, just like, you know, I just can't take it anymore. Anybody? I didn't think so. <laughs> Why? Because life is, life is hard, isn't it? Doesn't life just suck sometimes and it's hard and it hurts and, and there's suffering and there's, uh, and there's doubt and there's situations that just seem to be hopeless? Like how, how horrible is it to be dealing with all of those difficulties and all the discouragement that comes from life alone? We, it, it was never designed that way. Jesus put us in a family so that we would have other people to encourage us. Uh, and, and Paul lifts up like the, the epitome, the ultimate of all encouragement. He's like, listen, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. The dead in Christ will rise first and then we who remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, encourage one another. Put courage into, that's what the word means. Put courage into your brothers and your sisters because Jesus is coming back. He hasn't forgot us. He hasn't left us. I, I think we have so much opportunities to encourage each other. Like the person to your left, the person to your right, I just think they probably need some encouragement. And so God has given us a church family. To be devoted to the community is to encourage. I was reading a book uh, a few months ago uh, about uh, war. I, I read a lot of different things about civil war, about uh, revolutionary war. Uh, and this one said something very interesting. It was talking about all these different places in battle where just incredible moments of courage happened. And it said this one little quote that stuck out to me. It said, uh, courage rarely happens when someone's alone. R rarely is someone courageous by themselves. It says normally it happens inside of a group where one person uh, is kind of stirred up out of love for others to have some moment of courage that then catches on. Has anybody ever seen The Patriot? Okay, remember the moment where it looks like they're losing the battle, everybody runs, everybody's you know dropping their guns, they're turning and running, except for... Mel Gibson, the patriot. <laughs> what does he do? He, he just like decides, he has this moment of courage and he just turns around, grabs the flag, runs straight into the army and that little act of courage, the little, that, that big act of, uh, of, of fake cinematographical courage like changes everybody else. It's like that one moment of courage changed everyone. That happens all, all, all the time. Someone in your community group, someone in your family decides, you know what, uh, I, I'm going to do something courageous for Jesus. That has a way of being contagious. You, we need community because someone's going to get stirred up and their courage is going to uh, infuse into you. Encourage one another. Number four, exhort. Everybody say exhort. We don't use that word a whole lot. Uh, basically, that's like encourage, um, encouragement on steroids. It's like encourage so much that you're basically uh, challenging and correcting someone, okay? Exhort one another. Hebrews 3 says this, take care, brothers, Christians, family, lest there be any of you an evil, in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is God's mechanism to protect us from the deceitfulness of sin? 
not just community, but someone that actually loves you enough to correct you. You have anybody in your life like that? I think so, so often it's easy to just kind of have yes men and yes women. I want you around, just don't say anything hard. Well, not going to be aware of a lot of our blind spots or the deceitfulness of sin unless you have someone in your life that actually loves you enough to exhort you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to correct you. Exhort one another. Number five, bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2, Paul says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What was the law of Christ? Love one another. How do you do that? Help bear one another's burdens. You're burdened with something with your children. Share it with somebody because God's given you a family so you don't have to bear it alone. You have a burden of taking care of an aging parent. You have a burden of uh, of problem in marriage. You have a burden of a wayward child. You have a burden uh, walking through some uh, form of, uh, of, 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 d- d- of disease or affliction or whatever it is. Like you just, we're not designed to bear those burdens alone. Share it with someone so they can bear it with you. Bear one another's burdens. Number six, stir up one another. Stir up one another. I think the, the last time I, I preached this text, I used um, the analogy of uh, I found a sippy cup years ago that one of my kids had put milk in and then they left it in my black Toyota Tacoma in Midland in the summer for a few days. And what happens? It separates and you, it needs to be stirred up before you drink it again, right? <laughs> That's the same response I got last time. So I will change it. I won't use that, forget I said that. Kool-Aid, you let Kool-Aid set for a day, all the Kool-Aid goes to the bottom. What do you gotta do? You gotta stir it up, okay? Hebrews says this. Let us consider, talking to, this is Christians, this is in the house, in the family. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglect, do not neglect, he says, to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's like, sit around, think, brainstorm, consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds because sometimes Christians just kind of settle. We're like, we just kind of settle in on our own life and our own patterns and our own uh, problems and we forget that there's a mission that we're supposed to accomplish, the good works that we're supposed to have and sometimes we need somebody to kind of agitate us that, that's what that word means, like your washing machine has an agitator that stirs things up. It says, like, consider how you can stir up one another to love and good works. What does that mean? It means that sometimes we're supposed to be like, hey, guys, remember, we're supposed to do some stuff. There's some people that need to be loved, some darkness that needs to be pushed back. I think we need to get up off of our chairs and go get to work to stir up one another, to do some things for Jesus. I love that. Like, let us consider. He's like, you need to think about it. Some of you are getting, you're getting bored. Maybe you're getting lazy. You need somebody to stir us up and remind that we have a mission to accomplish. Number seven, uh, I love this. I've preached on it so many times. Uh, show hospitality to one another. But it's such a timely reminder because community groups are kicking off again and people are opening up their homes and uh, so many of us are laboring to truly live hospitable lives to invite humans into our house to share a meal, to enjoy Jesus together. First Peter says this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Do you see that? Why is that there? Have you ever had anybody in your house? <laughs> if you have, 
there is sometimes an opportunity to grumble. Like, golly, they didn't bring anything. But dirty feet, you know, didn't help do the dishes, didn't help fold my underwear that were laying out. It's like, like it's just, it, it, it's, it's, it's inconvenient sometimes. I can't invite somebody over. I have to clean the house. I'll have to at least move all the laundry to the bedroom. Like, it's just like, they're, they're, it, it, it's costly to open up your home and to be hospitable. But this command right there, it's like, even in the first century, it was, it was a little bit of a challenge, right? He says, just seek to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, I, I, there's so many different things as we take this, this diamond of fellowship or community and, and we twirl it around. But one thing I just want to take note of, actually, I don't know, three or four things. Community, that one of the reasons that we're, obviously we're in community because we, we bear the, the image of a triune relational God. But then I believe with all of my heart that community is also one of the tools that God uses in our sanctification, okay? Uh, sanctification, if you're new to church, uh, is a word that basically, it's the process um, that, that basically the entire Christian life is God shaping us into the image of Jesus. He's making us more holy. That's what sanctification means. And, and you can only be, become so sanctified alone. How many of you want to be like Jesus? That's hopefully a rhetorical question. <laughs> if you truly want to become like Jesus, you cannot without community. You cannot learn forgiveness from a book, right? You can learn the idea of it, but not the depth of it. You don't learn patience from a book. How do you learn forgiveness if Jesus is forgiving and we want to be like him? Be in community with people that sin against you. How do you learn patience? Be in community with people that are that require some, some patience. Do y'all, y'all remember the proverb that says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another? That, that some of the sharpening of sanctification has to do when we're just adopted into the spiritual family with other people that are just as broken as us, yet we're wildly devoted to each other. That is very sanctifying. And if you're committed to that, you will come out of that looking much more like Jesus. Two more things. Number one, uh, with community, I've seen this over the years, been doing ministry now for about 20 years. Don't wait. Okay? A lot of people wait till something gets really difficult in their life to try to create community. It's, it's like if you're walking a tightrope, you wouldn't wait and you fell to, uh, to, until you fell off to, to put a safety net in, right? No, you do that at the beginning. Like, you, you, you build community and you build relationships so that it's already there. Like, when you need it, you've already built it. If, if you haven't spent the time to invest in true friendship and community, then when everything hits the fan in your life, you're looking around like, man, I wish I had a safety net. So don't wait. And number two, this is... Um, probably especially for the Western mindset, because I hear often, well, I just, I don't, I don't want to, whether it's a community group or, or, or just church in general, I just don't want to seek out relationships and community because I don't need it right now. I'm in a good place. And the very simple question is, what if someone else needs you, right? What if it's not about us? Like, that, that's such an American mindset to looking at this. It's like, well, it's, you know, I'm going to press a little bit on this. Like, it's all about me, so I'm only going to need community if I need it. 
well, what if it's not about us? What if you need to show up this week for somebody else because they're lonely, they're discouraged, they're beat down, and they need somebody else, and you're there to give, not to take? I think the best community, the most healthy families are the ones where everyone gives and everyone receives. If you keep looking back in Acts chapter 2, you see that they believe, why did they live with such radical devotion to each other? They believed the gospel. That's what it starts. They believed what Peter said about Jesus, and their reaction was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers, and then the Lord added to their number everyday people that were getting saved. In our culture, deep relationships and true gospel community is one of the things the world needs to see in the church, and as they do, I think people are drawn to it, and they, they, they see the gospel being lived out, and it's such, a, it's such a powerful tool for the gospel for us to be devoted to one another. Let me invite you to bow your head, close your eyes. We're going to pray, and then we're actually going to take communion together uh, as a church to just simply be reminded that Jesus uh, died to give us community with him uh, and also to give us community with each other. So, Father, uh, we, we love you, and I pray that you would truly give us a deep sense of devotion for one another. God, reorient the priorities in our heart, if that's necessary. God, help us to recognize not just the vertical nature of the gospel that you've united us with you, but uh, you have also united us horizontally with our brothers and our sisters, and we belong to each other. We're in one family. We've been given so many commands to love one another, serve one another, be hospitable to one another. I pray that your spirit might stir us up to obey these commands, uh, that we might look up and just be so grateful uh, for the family that you've given us. And I pray that people in Midland would become saved through that witness. Jesus, we love you, and I pray that you would truly receive a lot of worship and a lot of glory from our uh, hearts and from our mouths in these next few moments. Love you, Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.